A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, wherever you are in the world. I am Russell Tovey. And I'm Robert Diamant. And this is Talk Art. Welcome to Talk Art. How are you today, Robert? Today, Russell, well, you know, I often feel global, and that's like something that I, you know, a a given. joke about, like, I'm so global. But mm. today, I'm actually feeling a bit more local, a bit more national, and a bit more British. And I've been thinking a lot about what it means to be British in this current moment. You know, post uh, Queen Elizabeth, we're going into this kind of new era. But to learn about where we are in the current moment, you often have to look back to the past. And we are very lucky in the UK because we have lots of museums and institutions and archives and libraries. And today's guest is the head of one of these amazing institutions. It's a national treasure, if you like, the National Portrait Gallery. And it also, every time I think of the National Portrait Gallery, I always think of Snow White, weirdly. You know, imagine like looking into the mirror and being kind of like, you know, mirror, mirror on the wall. Because I am a bit of an evil queen. Snow White. You know, you know what I am, hun? Um, yeah, because, Ursula. No, but you know why? Because their collection at the National Portrait Gallery mm. is so extraordinary. It has like over 220,000 works from the 8th century until the present day and a lot of the people in their collection are kind of these figures from history they've got like elizabethan portraits tudor portraits this uh, you know works looking at the civil war victorian edwardian 20th century contemporary portraits even the portrait of russell tovey which is just about to enter the collection so we can talk about that very mm -hmm. soon so we would like to welcome to talk art a very fine gentleman Nicholas, Nicholas Cullinan. Cullinan. Thanks. Hi, Nick. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Oh, thanks for being here. It's a pleasure here. to be here. Total pleasure. Total pleasure. So what? why are we talking to you, Nick, when we are talking about the National Portrait Gallery? What is your connection? <laughs> so, as you said, I work at the MPG. I've actually worked there twice um, thus far. So I worked there more than 20 years ago, which makes me feel really old when I was a student. And it was a part-time job just to pay the bills. I worked there as a front-of-house visitor service assistant, like a guard, basically. Uh, and I loved it. And then I've been there the last eight years as the director overseeing this big project, which opens in just under a month, which is very exciting. It's so exciting. So on the 22nd of June, 2023, the new National Portrait Gallery opens. And there's quite a few massive changes, including the actual entrance. So the way that you access the gallery is going to be completely new isn't it yeah um i mean there's many changes and as you said it's like top to bottom uh tudors to now and it's from even before you set foot in the building and one of the things that jamie Fobert, the architect who's been a pleasure to work with uh very astutely noticed about the mpg is that our existing previously you know our previous main entrance was more like a side entrance for a museum today and that there was no real public presence or forecourt and so he set about rectifying that. So we have this beautiful new forecourt 
that at last um, provides a proper welcome to the gallery. Well, that that sounds great. So let's go back to you being a student then. You studied at the Courtauld, which is one of the top uh, history of art schools in the world. And you spent basically seven years there doing your uh, BA, MA, PhD. And then as a part-time job, you were at the MPG. What, why was it the MPG that you chose to work at at that age? Because they offered to pay me. Uh, <laughs> um, well, that's actually really good. If yeah, no, it was good. Except, yeah, well, it was good. No, I, oh, my God, I did all kinds of part-time jobs. I worked, um, the, the big one was Boots Opticians on Kensington High Street. I used to work there every Saturday and Sunday. And then it was the MPG Thursday and Friday evenings. So there was, And there's, there was other part-time jobs, too. But I always really enjoyed it. I used to love like leaving the library at the Courtauld, walking down the strands, going to the gallery. I didn't love putting on my uniform because it was polyester and itchy and really kind of scratchy. Um, but I used to love being in the gallery and spending time with the visitors, with the collection. Yeah, I just always had a real affection for the place and still do, which is nice after now two stints and eight years this time around. <laughs> and as director of it, yeah, you should. And like, <laughs> I, I read that part of your role was to actually like walk around with people visiting and like talk about the works on display, you know, back, yeah, back then. A bit. I mean, I used to do some tours and like talk about works. But to be honest, it was mostly like being in rooms and making sure that people didn't damage stuff. Right. But that meant that I just had a lot of time in the galleries and I had time to like read the labels and and it was just funny because I never I never thought that job would be useful in the future <laughs> although I enjoyed it and then when I had my interview like nine years ago now to be director when the trustees would show me a postcard and say what's this it was all there and I could be like oh that's George Romney's self-portrait from 1784 or it was just one of those weird things about life that you do one thing you don't think it's going to lead anywhere and then suddenly it does so yeah that was your mastermind challenge <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> so you you are a, a high art achiever so you are at the National Portrait Gallery now but your CV for positions that you've been working at is the top of the top it's like hollywood a-list version of the art world you've worked at moma the guggenheim the tate the met now you're at the national portrait gallery how how has this happened has and it looks from the outside very seamless and very much like you've just (laughs) gone like you work with peggy guggenheim's collection as as a fellow uh, which i don't even know what that means as a fellow but that's like sounds great (laughs) not as a woman not as a woman as a fellow fellow. (laughs) but you but it's like you've had the most incredible art career yeah, it looks maybe it looks like that now, but like it didn't feel like that at the time. Like I mean, as I said, you know, I, I did I studied and I had to work a lot of part time jobs um, just to kind of get by and pay the bills, like most students. And it was it was kind of like hand to mouth. I mean, literally, like I spent a lot of time living on very little money, and also just not very clear like where my next rent check was coming from or mm. what was going if I was going to get you know a scholarship to be able to go and do an MA after the BA and then if I was going to be able to get a scholarship to do the PhD and then if I was going to get a job so this is sounding like really maudlin and like bring out the violin <laughs> no. but no just like it's, it's inspiring like, well no it's just because yeah, you can look at these things and, and people do say I, I do like lots of talks in uh, state secondary schools with this amazing charity called Speakers for Schools which I love about the art world and you know art history and things you can do in it and you know teenagers say to me oh like how do I get a career or a job like yours and I always say to them like you know maybe now it looks 
seamless, but it wasn't at the time. And I had lots of rejection and discouragement and you just kind of have to keep going and believe in it and kind of hold your nerve a little bit. And yeah, and then gradually it kind of built up a bit of traction, which was nice. But for example, like the reason that I started out in New York was because uh, with Momo, I, I had a, the internship in the photography department is because they, they did a paid internship. This is back in 2006, I guess, 2005, 2006. And at that time, like British museums, the internships were unpaid and I couldn't afford to do an unpaid internship because I, I was studying and then I had to work to pay my rent. And so I kind of had to move to New York again, like poor me, but literally like I had to do, I had to move to New York to be able to do, to, to get some experience, but it had to pay me. I couldn't afford to do these things for free. And I'm really glad now that in British museums, all internships are paid. It's something that I feel. Oh, really, they are. Cause there's a yeah. quote where you've said that unpaid internships are an abuse. And it feels yeah, like well, you... I mean, it's not an abuse if you can afford to give your time. It's a lovely thing. If like I, I now can volunteer and do stuff like speakers for schools or other stuff, but I'm in a position where I can afford to volunteer. I wasn't in that position 15 years ago. Mm. And the, the thing that's really bad about that is it means that the people that begin to get experience and therefore get traction that I talked about and then become successful are people that can afford to do that. Mm. So it's kind of nepotism. It's really unfair. It like tilts the playing field mm. uh, in a really unfair way. And I just think that one of the really important things for the art world, it's getting better, but there's still a long way to go, is to be open to as many people and as many really good people as possible. And the wider and more diverse the pool of people that want to do it, the better it's going to be rather than like a self-selected little elite. So yeah, it's something I feel quite strongly about. Yeah, for sure. So what was it about art history specifically that spoke to you when you were growing up? Because I feel like you are an art historian, but you've also become a curator. So was, was it curating or was it art history that you sort of began with? It, yeah, it was more sort of art history, and it, it was pretty random. Um, I took out, I took a, I took a gap year, but not in the kind of like nice travel around Europe way. It was, I took a year out between my A levels and then going to university, because I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do, and I didn't want to kind of waste the opportunity and the amazing debt of going to university. <laughs> so I took some time out, and I worked at Boots Opticians in Halifax, where I grew up before they transferred me to High Street Ken. Uh, and I worked and then when I could afford, I traveled a little bit, I went to Venice and, and that was like my kind of real epiphany. And I was in the academia gallery and it used to be open late on a Wednesday evening. And I was there by myself on Wednesday with my rough guide. And I was in that, you know, that final room of Carpaccio's St. Ursula cycle, which I still love, um, this, you know, Renaissance narrative cycle around the life and the martyrdom of St. Ursula. And I was in this room by myself and I was reading the guidebook and it was talking about John Ruskin and how he became obsessed with his paintings and in particular, the dream of St. Ursula. And I just had this like little proper epiphany where I was like, I want to do art history. This is what I wanted to spend my life doing because you get to look at these amazing visual objects. And in doing that, you need to bring in history, literature, languages, like all these different spheres of culture. And so um, I kind of came home and I researched like where the good places to do our history are. And I applied to a bunch of them. And one of them was the Courtauld. And it started from there. But yeah, it was it was random, really. But I mean, that's the other thing. I think the main piece of luck in life is to figure out what you want to do. 
and then there's like a big battle to be able to do it but mm. the first thing is like figuring out what you want to spend your life doing that's the key thing but that's the hardest thing for so many people i mean yep. I, I i feel a privilege that i knew as a kid i want to be an actor and that was it and i just was blinkered but if you don't if you really genuinely don't know it's a really bewildering quite scary terrain ahead of you and then if you suddenly get like you do drift for a while and you suddenly get to like 30 then you're like and you haven't really still haven't planned it it's really it's you know it's terrifying yeah i just think the big piece of of luck in life is to figure that out and as you say to figure it out early enough so that you can then i mean it's never too late you know um and who knows maybe we're all going to have an amazing second and third act i hope we will but it's great when you figure it out and you know at the right age and then you can begin and then of course it's super hard thereafter but in a way that's the hardest bit is to kind of figure out what do i love what am i dedicated to you know, I always used to find it so pressurizing, that idea of trying to work out what it is you want to be. And um, I remember sitting in school when you'd have those kind of careers meetings. And all I wanted to do was be a pop star. And it was such not not a possibility. Do you know what I mean? And everyone was like, go to university, do this, do that. But recently, I heard this podcast called On Being. And there was this poet on it. And he was talking about um, how people pay attention to things. And it suddenly like, after all these years made so much sense about so much stuff the idea of just paying attention and it's almost like if people had said to me back then like what would you like to pay attention to it would have just been so much easier it's almost like the language around it it's yeah. this kind of like heavy weight of like what, so what you're going to be when in you grow the world up. yeah what, you yeah, be what you do you want to do yeah and you know what job do you want to have and i'd always be like i have no idea because actually finding your vocation or whatever it is is just about what you pay attention to what you like yeah. to focus on what do you love you know that's the main thing that's the other thing that I often say to to students when I'm talking to them is like don't listen to anyone telling you you know what you should be just figure out what you love and do that yeah because if you do that probably you'll become good at it and then you'll probably become successful at it with a bit of luck but like just do what you love like don't tune out all the other white noise if you should be this you should do this you should do this because it pays well blah 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 like just figure out what you love and do that same as attention really yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Can you just go back to say who John Ruskin is and and his connection to Venice? Because people listening might not know who he was. Oh, you're testing me. Um, <laughs> so John Ruskin was a 19th century um, historian and writer, and he wrote about uh, many different topics. Many of them were to do with art history, especially like the Gothic and Venice, indeed. And he was also very socially kind of aware and um, advanced lots of kind of good socialist principles in the 19th century. Uh, And I guess his writing has been kind of forgotten about a little bit now. Um, I mean, people still know the name, but I don't know how many people read his writing. Not that I spend like all my weekends (laughs) under a tree with the collected works of John Ruskin. (laughs) But um, he's a really fascinating figure, actually. And yeah, it's just a coincidence that that was, I'm not saying it was like John Ruskin that made me do this but it was just being in that room with those paintings by carpaccio yeah like a little light bulb went off and that was i still think about that a lot you know and it's just nice that like 20 odd years later that moment was still right if that makes sense Mm -hmm. thus far who knows but yeah so in 2015 you were uh made director of the national portrait gallery and you were just 37 that's crazy uh and in year in 2020 um, it was announced that the National Portrait Gallery was going to be closed for three years for renovations. And it's, as we're saying in the opening, it's due to open very, very soon. Why did it need renovations? And why did it need to be shut down for so long for that? 
Good question. Okay. So, yeah, when I was appointed eight years ago, there was a kind of plan to do a transformation project, and it began kind of with a, a shopping list of different items. And one thing that was at the top of the list was that we uh, had an amazing learning department. They did all kinds of incredible work with different groups and communities and, you know, from young children to adult learners. But we had like one really um, not very particularly welcoming studio, which was a real shame. So there was a, a sense of we need a proper learning center to host um, these people and these activities. Also, it's just some really basic things, but like the, the building had stopped working properly. So because at that point we began using the entire ground floor for exhibitions, the lift, you couldn't get or get out of the lift on the ground floor because it would have dropped you off in the middle of a paid exhibition. So anyone with a wheelchair or a buggy, like A, no step-free access in, really embarrassing. You couldn't connect to the ground floor. Um, there was all these issues. And that's just some kind of practical right issues the other thing is that you know the a lot of the galleries hadn't been touched um or rehung or even the labels looked at for like 30 years mm. and um i mean and there's nothing wrong with that like some some of those things were great but you know some labels were just feeling a little clunky in terms of the way they talked about things you know and just a bit sort of old school and a bit maybe yeah, just not as relevant, not as engaging. Um, and yeah, I mean, there was also things about the collection wanting to kind of, you know, grow and advance the collection and sort of to work with the best artists and the best sitters like Russell Tovey, Doran Langberg. We'll come <laughs> on to that now. Um, we'll come on to that. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, so basically we began kind of formulating how you would transform a museum. And what I liked about it from the get-go was that it wasn't about just building a new wing, like grafting something new onto what was already there, mm -hmm. something old, but it was about making the most of what was already there, the building, the collection, you know, the interpretation, but also, you know, we've done like a big rebrand um, and it's everything all at once together, which I think is really nice. And then, just to sort of answer the second part of the question in terms of, so we began working on this from when I started, fundraising and then appointing Jamie. And then what we gradually came to realize, I think the original plan was that we could do this in kind of phases and shut one floor and then do that while we did the second floor. And we talked to everyone who had done a big sort of transformation, but especially people that had done a transformation in buildings that were similar to ours, like a grade one listed historic building um, and also a building that doesn't have, I was going to say detachable wings, but that sounds weird. But like, you know, like a, a big, a big building like the V&A where you could work in one wing and you wouldn't, you wouldn't even know. Wing. You wouldn't even know. Yeah. Yeah. We, I mean, we're sort of like a palazzo and you, if you're doing something upstairs or downstairs, you're going to hear, you're going to know. And what everyone said to us is if you can close, close, because what's going to happen is you're going to start and you're going to have one floor open. And the disruption and the noise and the vibration and the dust is going to be so bad that your visitors will stop coming and they're going to complain. And also, and eventually, you'll just have to shut anyway. And and then the other thing we realized is that if we if we just sort of bit the bullet and and close the gallery, it would be we would save a year of time. It would have taken four years, not three. And we also oh, wow. saved like more than a million pounds. And then the final thing I'll say is that um, so that wasn't the plan originally to close. But we realized it was it was kind of the right way to go, 
also just in terms of safeguarding the collection, you know, and scary things happened while we were working on the project, like the second fire at the Glasgow School of Art and Notre Dame burning down. And I was like, oh, I kind of don't want to be the director that did a building project and like burned all the Tudor paintings or like the Chandos portrait of Shakespeare. Because yeah. these are this is like part of our national psyche. It would be a catastrophe. Um, so yeah, we were thinking about those things definitely. Where did they? Where did all the paintings go? I, I know that there was hundreds of works that went to collections, like touring collections around uh, the nation. But is there a huge storage facility somewhere, or how did you protect them to safeguard all the actual works? Yeah, they were mostly in my living room. No, um, <laughs> so uh, yeah. So what, the other thing is, you know, we thought, okay, look, the building in London is going to be really compromised, and that's just what it is. Like, it needs to be redone. It, you know, museums exist over tens and hopefully hundreds of years and every every few decades they need work it's just how it is so let's you know bite the bullet do that and then what an amazing opportunity to actually take the collection outside of london and to tour it all around the country share it around the world so we we did that and we basically just shared the collection more widely than ever before and we did all these fantastic programs around um the uk with big exhibitions for example, like all of our great Tudor paintings went to Liverpool and went to Bath, things that will never leave probably London in my lifetime again, just because they're very fragile. And, you know, we, we sort of need them on view because our visitors expect them. But being closed just gave us the chance to share everything, just to be super generous and not just focus on London, which I feel really passionate about mm. having grown up in Yorkshire. Um, and... We did other projects like this great project we do called Coming Home, where we lend one um, portrait back to the place that's associated, usually with the sitter or the artist. So, for example, we lent uh, Tracy Emin to Margate um, and the Bronte sisters back to the Parsonage in Haworth, where I grew up. So we did that. And that's just had such an amazing response with kind of local communities. I mean, for example, we lent this portrait of Stormzy um, to the library in Croydon. And it had an amazing response, but also like it boosted attendance there by something. Cra- I think it was like three hundred percent, something crazy. Wow. Like lending one thing can have such a massive. That's impact. what art does, though, doesn't it? Yeah, and also when it something- catches like that, it really can change and it- lives. And it's it's kind of also a unique USP about our collection, which is you know the people on our walls are people from all four corners of the country, and they all have different stories to tell. But if you know if you lend that portrait back to Haworth or Croydon or Margate, it makes people in those communities think, oh, this person has done that and they've achieved something and they're part of a bigger national story and maybe they even have kind of world significance. It just breaks down these these boundaries that have been kind of cropping up between, you know, local, national, international. So yeah, we just did things like that and it just felt really positive. Looking forward, if you think about, you actually mentioned the idea of like the psyche of the nation and the kind of like the way we all consider ourselves to be British. Have there been sort of a, has there been a kind of reanalysis about about what the National Portrait Gallery's role is in, you know, today's world in a much more kind of inclusive world, hopefully, particularly in, in the UK? Yeah, it's a really good point. Yeah, we did a lot of thinking about that. And and. You know, a, a lot of the project was like going back through our history and our archive. Um, I mean, for example, like the new logo um, comes from this incredible little sketch we found in the archive by the first director of the MPG, Sir George Scarf, who mm. was a much better draftsman than I can barely write these days. 
Um, but he made these beautiful drawings and studies. He sort of traveled the UK and, and, and made it essentially kind of an inventory of portraits in all these different country houses and like a national collection. And, and he did this in 1893, just before our building opened in 1896. He did this beautiful logo of this, this interlocking MPG. And we took that as the kind of DNA of our new logo, because in a way it felt it felt like a nice met, visual metaphor for what we were doing, which was to make ourselves hopefully more relevant, definitely more inclusive and more engaging. And in a way to feel more contemporary, but to do that by looking back through our past and understanding how and why we began. And, you know, I mentioned John Ruskin in the 19th century, and we're a 19th century in a good and a bad way uh, institution. I'll talk a little bit more about that. But really kind of going back through our origins, you know, why we were founded, what it meant then, what's changed, you know, what should change, what should stay the same, what's relevant now, what's less relevant, what needs to be rethought or critiqued or reexamined. Um, so, yeah. And, I mean, it's it's interesting because in some ways – just going back, so we were founded in 1856, and we were founded when we were founded. We were the first portrait gallery in the world, and it's quite a weird thing to have a portrait gallery. Mm. Um, not that many countries still have them. It's quite an Anglo-Saxon phenomenon. There's one obviously here. There's one in Edinburgh. There's one in Washington in America. There's one in Canberra in Australia. Um, so they're, they're relatively few. But when we were founded, we were founded um, to well, it's kind of interesting. I, I I don't want to get sort of too bogged down in the detail, but we were, we were kind of founded in opposition to the kind of grand telling of history that um, this was what was discussed in, in the kind of 1850s when we were being um, founded against the kind of grand history you get in those large paintings at Versailles, for example, outside Paris, where it's this kind of epic telling of French history. And what was decided was perhaps more British is this history of individuals and a more intimate um, and maybe a slightly more humble kind of tapestry of of um, piecing together a national story through all these different lives, which I think is very is still a very nice idea. And even then, when we were founded, the, the idea was that we would be there was this kind of Victorian aspect that we were there so that people, you know, ordinary working people would have something to aspire to and to emulate. Um, but what was also interesting is that it was decided that it shouldn't just be the great and the good that we sh- that we should acquire portraits of people that were flawed, because that was part of the story and people would learn from that. And that's still, I think, very relevant. That we're, you know, hopefully, we're not there just to provide these examples of people to say, you know, you should emulate this person, like Russell Tovey. Um, we're, we're there to provide this account. It's very sort of you know interesting, nuanced debate around identity and you know, how people can have an impact and also how people, you know, can be flawed, unlike Russell Tovey. Unlike me, I'm um, not flawed. But it, it's, it, well, it's in, an impartial collection, isn't it, then? You can't, yeah. it's not political. You know, no. you, will, you will, have, will have portraits of Margaret Thatcher, for example, who is a polarising figure, but, but important and historical. So, of course, she's yeah. in there. But then but then there will be people to be like, we shouldn't have that. And other people will be like, Yes, we should have that. Well, it's, it's interesting. So when I started in, in 2015, the, the big word that was used as a criteria for acquiring someone, and, and I should say that when we acquire a portrait, it's always the sitter first that we look at. And then... I love that guiding principle. Yeah, just just to clarify that, this the subject before the artist, which goes against everything in, yeah. you know, every, every other institution is always artist first and then 
whatever exactly. it is. But this is this is always the sitter is the most important hierarchy. Then comes the artist. Yeah, I mean, and we did that maybe almost to a fault sometimes. Um, in that, I think sometimes we would focus so much on the sitter that the artist became kind of not not irrelevant, but it was perhaps less important. And one thing I was very keen to do was to was to especially when we commission, which we do was to really get this perfect marriage of artist and sitter. And so, for example, when I was interviewed, they said to me, if you could commission a portrait of any sitter by any artist, what would it be? And I said, it would be a portrait of Malala by Shirin Nishat. And that was sort of deliberate on a couple of levels in that, you know, Malala is such an amazing and inspiring world figure, you know, not born in the UK, but obviously has been based here for many years in Birmingham and then Oxford. And then the second thing I wanted to do was to sort of think, it doesn't have to be a British figurative painter to make that image. Like it could be, it's the best artist, like go and find them. Just in the way that, you know, we have Van Dyck and we have Holbein and many other artists who weren't born in the UK, but have worked here or, you know, have made an extraordinary image of someone from here. And so choosing Shirin was a very sort of deliberate move too. And so when when I began, we progressed that commission. And I, I had no idea when I asked Malala if she would like to be depicted by Sharin, and when I asked Sharin if she would like to depict Malala, if they would both agree and sort of be happy, and they were absolutely delighted. And that image is just such an amazing, powerful image still I'm really proud of. So yeah, we, we really sort of wanted to think about how to, how to kind of grow the collection too. And now, sorry, I've lost my trail of thought, but... Um, no, I mean, you've, you've covered lots there. I, I love this idea of the commission and I love this idea that you've paired the artist and the sitter there. When it comes to commissions, is that something that you actively with trustees pitch? Do you pitch like we need this sitter? I really want to pair this together. Is this something that comes from people who are making donations and they go, I want to donate an image like this with this person? How, how does that process work? Yeah, it's both. So, so the commissions, which is a very unique thing to the MPG, like we're, I think we're the only institution that actually commissions for its collection. Every year we commission a handful of portraits. And how that works is that the trustees sit down and they, they look at, we prepare for them a list of people um, across always different disciplines. So it's, it's always balanced. It's people that are in the arts, in sciences, in politics, maybe less so recently, um, in all these different fields. And the trustees kind of in in a discussion come up with like a, a handful, like six or so sitters that they want to prioritize as commissioning. And we then take that list and then sort of match make with the artist and find the artist to, to take on that commission. So another example is um, Nick Sorota was was long down as as a commission and the right artist hadn't been found. And again, when I started, that sort of wasn't really progressing and um, I had lunch with Nick and I said, and, you know, there was an idea for a certain artist, I'm not going to say who it was, but it felt very expected. Mm. And I said, you know, I, yeah, I just, I'm not sure this really kind of does you favors. And I, I'd like, I'd like more of a curveball for you and like an artist that you've always worked with, but maybe isn't as obvious. And how about Steve McQueen? And right away, Nick was like, oh yeah, that would be really interesting. And then we approached Steve and he was like, I would love to do a portrait of Nick because, you know, he's Nick is someone that Steve has known, worked with. Since and who he is Nick Sorota for people? Oh, sorry. Nick Sorota um, is, <laughs> that feels like a t-shirt waiting to happen. Um, <laughs> Nick, Nick Sorota, uh, well, is best known as being the former director of the Tate Gallery. Um, and he was the director for 
God, more than 20 years, 25 years, like um, began in the late 80s and finished in 2016. I used to work with him. That's not why we commissioned a portrait of him. But he basically oversaw the, the creation of Tate Modern. And in doing that, I think was one of the kind of key figures that put London and contemporary art in London much more on the map. So where does where does the funding come from for commissions then? Is that again like donations or is that something that the MPG has reserves for? Uh, no reserves. Well, yeah, we have a little bit of money, but we, I mean, the other thing that we've done a lot the last eight years now is, is to really, uh, endlessly fundraise. And so when I started like eight years ago, um, this project was going to be by far, it was meant to be 35 million and it was going to be by far the biggest project that we'd ever done, the biggest amount we'd ever fundraised. And there was lots of kind of I would say uncertainty both within the building and maybe outside about could we raise that money and would we do it? And we've, yeah, I mean, like I've got amazing colleagues in the development team and we really, yeah, we just sort of figure out how to make things possible. So in the end, I feel like I'm boasting now, but I'm going to boast for a second. Yeah. So in the end, we we basically, we we didn't just raise that money. We actually over fundraised by like 10 million. So we raised about 45 million for the capital campaign. And then we've just acquired the most, this is boring to talk about money, but we've just acquired, you know, this very expensive painting, but the most this incredible painting by Reynolds, um, Portrait of Mai, who was a Polynesian visitor to Georgian London, um, who had a big impact. And that painting, since it was first shown at the Royal Academy in 1776, has always been seen as one of the great British portraits, um, like Reynolds, probably Reynolds' greatest work. And so we've just acquired that. And that was an epic fundraising sort of battle. Yeah, like everything we do, we pretty much have to fundraise for. And um, it's a lot of work. But it's just, you know, money's not that interesting. I think what's interesting is to have an idea and think, right, let's make this possible. And it doesn't have to be a huge amount of money. It doesn't matter whether you're talking about a 50 million pound painting or something that doesn't cost that much it's the idea that's important but also like somewhere like the national portrait gallery has such power to kind of tell stories and tell stories of you know kind of actual living experience in a way and i feel like has that has that had to have been like in your rehang are you having to sort of try and seek out stories that might not have been represented previously like uh, have have you discovered some amazing like women that might have been left out of history before you know if you think of even the stuff that Katie Hessel's been doing recently with um you know her book and podcast like kind of rediscovering voices that might have been in the collection but wouldn't have been on display absolutely and there was many gaps in the collection and and you know the thing I should say is that this project didn't begin because we decided on a whim to do like a big transformation project it really began by uh talking to and listening to both our visitors and people that didn't visit and understanding why right right yeah it was really interesting that's what kind of began the project was like really talking to people and seeing what they thought of the mpg and what worked and what didn't work and that but what was what to go on that then what was the main thing then that why were people saying they weren't visiting so the the main reason that was given for people that didn't visit was um that it was irrelevant it was kind of um an old dusty institution full of portraits of old white men that was the that was the perception right and and there was a degree of truth to that in terms of um you know the collection was skewed in a way it it definitely didn't represent the british population now let's say so one thing that we've also been doing in a in a very rigorous way the last few years is to really 
yeah, as I said, like really build a collection and um, and that takes many forms. So for example, we've been working really hard to your point about, you know, Katie's work, which is fantastic. We've been working really hard to get much better gender balance. Um, and we've done this big project um, supported by Chanel, which has been amazing. They funded us for three years to make acquisitions, but also funded curatorial posts. Wow. Um, my amazing colleague Flavia, who's been leading this, and mm. research so that we could make acquisitions, but also, you know, to your point, that we could go through our archive and figure out what we already had, and like no one had had the bandwidth or time to look at. And the output of that, when you when you come and see the galleries, you know, post 1900, we've gone from 23% of the sitters on the wall being women to 48%. We've almost, well, we've more than doubled it, and we've almost got gender parity, which is fantastic. The other thing is that, um, yeah, we've tried really hard to to fill in gaps, to fill in sitters that we're missing. And that's why, for example, the portrait of Mai is just such an amazing, powerful thing to have, to have this this, you know, one of the greatest British portraits and works of art, but also of a non-white sitter in Georgian London who was given dignity, both in that painting and pretty much generally in terms of his reception and wasn't here um, in any way because he was subjugated or part of slavery or any of those other narratives that we also really engage with in a very, in a very honest way, which I think is really important. But that just is such a powerful story of kind of transcendence. And that's something, you know, we've also worked with amazing advisory groups the last few years to kind of give us different perspectives. And we had a fantastic advisory group to advise on um, slavery and colonialism. And one thing they said to us very clearly, both that group and other people that we we spoke to is, you know, it's really important to tell the history, the very honest history, painful history of slavery in this country, but that's not enough. And it's not acceptable, you know, to to kind of only have um, a history which shows slavery and then Windrush and then now. We need to be given other examples of kind of, you know, transcendence and agency. So hence people like Mai, for example, um, you know, we don't have a portrait of him, but we've borrowed Elizabeth Payton's beautiful portrait of Frederick Douglass, um, the abolitionist who was American, but spent several years in the UK there's an amazing film about him right now um, in Isaac Julian's retrospective at Tate Britain. And so we began thinking about how we could fill these gaps too by working with great artists to show sitters that, you know, we can't acquire an image because one doesn't exist or one's not available, but to kind of in a way backfill. Um, and it hopefully it just adds up to a much richer, more engaging, more representative account of Britain and its history. One that's truer as well as, you know, it's actually resembles what Britain was and is like now rather than one particular slice. Maybe it also allows for more to grow as well from yeah. that. Like I think it's a richer bed, isn't it, in a sense? Like yeah. more fertile ground. And hopefully it will also encourage people that haven't been to the MPG or haven't been for a long time to start coming and to start mm. thinking about these things and to engaging. And, you know, it could trigger a whole other... Um, wave of change which would be fantastic so do you think as a tourist uh, a visit to the mpg helps you to understand britain more <laughs> oh that's needed isn't it um hopefully yeah i mean i think that's one of our one of our remits one of our roles right i mean i would hope that just on a very basic level that you know when you when you as a as, a, as an international visitor when you come to london we might be in that sort of list of five or so museums that you need to go see to understand this country, you know, and hopefully like 
going to the BM, the National Gallery, Tate, the BNA. Um, hopefully, we would be amongst amongst those museums. And yeah, I mean, and we have a very unique, particular role. You know, we're we're about um, because it's it, it's a really interesting institution. It's it's obviously about art, but also it's about history and biography and the marriage of those things, which is unique. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to segue on to we, we've hinted at it, uh, so we might as well just uh, let the elephant out of the room. Uh, the portrait that is of me, the centre in the collection, which is very <laughs> exciting. But you just mentioned Elizabeth Payton, and I know there's a portrait that's on your Instagram that Elizabeth painted of you uh, in 2018, where you're there very comfortably in a pair of short shorts reading a book. And I, I was hoping that this would, this would be in the collection, but this is actually in the collection of Tadeusz Ropak. So I don't even know if it's got to be part of the MPG collection. No, but no, no. You, you've been painted by Elizabeth because she's your friend a few times. Huh. And I'd like to talk about your process of that, but then I would then then we can segue onto me being painted by Deron Langberg, who's a friend of mine. Uh, that was the first time we'd worked together on that. But it'd be really interesting to hear your process of being painted by someone like Elizabeth Payton. Uh, okay, my process is that I fall asleep. <laughs> so for that that portrait in 2018, um, yeah, like I got. To, I mean, I've known Elizabeth a long time, but we became friendly when I was living in New York before I came back to the MPG, and I was working at the Met, and I was working on a show there about unfinished works of art, and I included this incredible work of hers, which is a finished painting after an unfinished David portrait of Napoleon, and Napoleon's been a really important figure. For Elizabeth, she read a, this biography of him when she was young that kind of changed her life. So we became friendly then, and she asked me to sit for a portrait, and we did that. And I guess it's really—I mean, I'm curious to know what you think, but it's really interesting sitting for a painted portrait. It's different than a photograph mm-hmm. in many ways. But um, what I've realized is like it's really about this sense of kind of trust and intimacy between the artist and the sitter. It's so important, and I think in the early and also as a sitter, like you really want it to work for the artist because you don't want to waste oh, yeah. their time. So there's this kind of pressure. And I think in the early sittings, it just, we didn't know each other as well. And maybe it was a bit stiff and it didn't quite work. And and by the time you got to that, the one that did work in 2018, she was working on a show and she had a deadline. And I was like, this one's got to work. So um, yeah, like I basically uh, fell asleep during the sitting because I was really tired and that worked a charm because um, I wasn't posing or self-conscious or like there's just nothing about me. I mean, I was awake for the first bit. So that's when my eyes were open. And then I kind of kept nodding off. So that's what I found to be. That's what worked for me, I guess. But um, yeah, I'm just curious to hear how it was for you. But I feel it's definitely contingent on that sense of trust. Yeah, it's a it's a kind of um, it's a transaction in some ways, like a like a an art transaction and there is definitely a vibration. I understand that feeling of wanting to be your best for them so that they feel satisfied and you suddenly feel like even though you are neutral to an extent, it is performative. You are giving something and you're holding a stillness or you're holding a thing. But I, you know, I'm, I'm such a huge fan of Deron Langberg and I was working in New York last year. He's just the best. And yeah, there's a great podcast that you did with him on the freeze um what is the podcast called it's just freeze freeze masters freeze masters podcast yeah which is an incredible conversation you had but i was working last year in new york and we'd always talked about it i've known we've known him for many years he's been on talk art 
And he was like, I'm going to paint you at some point. And I spent a lot of time in Fire Island, which is very important to draw on. I saw him out there. And then he was like, look, I'm in the studio in Brooklyn. Why don't you come along and do a painting? And I was like, yeah, let's do it. This sounds incredible. <laughs> and I had a moustache at the time because I was playing like this 80s New York cop. And I thought, well, I want I want some a permanent record of that because I was very proud of my tash. <laughs> and then just sort of sat there with him and it was wonderful. And yeah. I, I know his work really well. And then to see yourself within someone's, practice who you love and you're a fan of is such a privilege and then I think you'd spoken to him before um about obviously for the podcast that you two did together and then I speak to his gallery and everything and I was like it'd be amazing if this got into like a museum somewhere and then then the MPG come up and here we are and it's now going to be in in the collection which is just like the, the it blows my mind that not only am I going to be in the MPG but also the fact that it's painted by someone who I absolutely love. There's a real connection. Yeah. I mean, no, we're it's such a great portrait and we're thrilled. And, it, you know, obviously to represent you as someone who's very prominent in British life, but to do that through a great artist. And again, to kind of bring Doran into the collection. It's that, yeah, it's that sense of matchmaking, which um, we just love doing. So we're really thrilled and it will be on view when we reopen in less than a month. It's very exciting. What, and what? also, I, I like the fact that he's an international artist too. I think mm. that's really interesting about the MPG because like so much of British culture is about connecting to other um, cultures and to, you know, different countries around the world. And yeah. I like that kind of outward looking thing. And Yeah, um, I just feel, you know, I mean, look, I was born in America, but I grew up here and I've lived a couple of times in America for work. And, you know, I feel basically British and I always choose to live here because I love this country, but I've, I wasn't born here. Um, and I think that's the case for lots of people that, you know, have moved here or have always lived here and were born here, but have spent time abroad or whatever. I think it's a bit more porous than that. And I think definitely, you know, I, I don't think we should just become like a repository for like British figurative painting. And I love British figurative painting, <laughs> but we shouldn't just be only that. And that's why, you know, I've, I've just really strived hard to kind of just to always work with the best artist for the, for the, whichever commission or sitting or portrait and just to, yeah, in a way, not worry about like what someone's passport is. What, what is the process then? For, so, so that painting would, you would have come across that painting. Uh, the gallery, Victoria Miro would have said to you who represent Duron would have said, look, there's this painting. We really want to get it into the collection. What is then the process going forward? How many people have to approve it? Does it have to go to trustees? Oh yeah. All that stuff. So, um, we, yeah, it goes to our curatorial committee. So that's the entire curatorial department and they discuss it. And then if it's recommended to go to trustees, it goes to our trustees and, um, they discuss it. So it's like a two-step process there is no shortage of bureaucracy in museums don't worry mm -hmm. um but yeah like it's just exciting to kind of make these things happen so and you know when we when we reopen next month uh we've got like more than 60 works that are haven't been seen before yeah, that went wow. to the collection as commissions or acquisitions and that's gonna you know all together with again like for example having you know doubled um our representation of women uh, post 1900 i keep having to say that because it's harder pre-1900 but we're working on it um it it just feels very different it feels really exciting and i think the quality the diversity has definitely gone up but the quality has gone up and i think both these things are important can you reveal any names yet or is it all still secret? oh yeah like lots of them have, we've um are already out there um so 
this amazing Michael Armitage um, portrait that he did in in 2020 of key workers that he donated, which is on going on view. The one of um, Nick Sorota by Steve McQueen that I mentioned. There's this wonderful one of Michael Evis, the founder of Glastonbury by mm-hmm. Peter Blake, that we actually unveiled at Glastonbury last year. Oh. There's Toyin Oju Odotola's amazing portrait of Zadie Smith that we haven't shown. Mm. That's um, toured though, hasn't it? That one. I think. love that painting. It's amazing. Yeah, it, it was it was shown at Brent in uh, when it was the Borough of Culture, but um, it has you know it's the first time that we'll be showing it, and it's an amazing portrait. Um, obviously, like the portrait of Mai by Reynolds, an amazing Gainsborough that we acquired. Um, there's so many loads. So yeah, it's really exciting to be able to kind of finally show all these things and to show that how you know cumulatively they've just begun to shift the dial do you feel in competition with other museums and institutions <laughs> no not at all like i mean we're we're colleagues we all kind of work together in fact actually i was just um i swung by tate britain uh on the way here so i'm i'm speaking to you from my flat in oval in south london and uh walking back from the mpg i sort of swung by tate britain i'll be back there tomorrow for their summer party and I was looking at their rehang, which I really enjoyed. Now, I, I, I don't feel in competition. Uh, I mean, I, I'm just not competitive. Like I've never been competitive as an individual. I'm very driven in terms of what I do. Like, whatever I'm doing, I really do um, kind of obsessively. And, I, you know, it has to be as good as it can be. And But I never, I'm in doing that, I'm never looking over my shoulder and thinking, like, how I'm, how I'm doing compared to someone else. And it's the same, I think, with, yeah, we we're just very collaborative as an organisation. We don't compete; we collaborate. Talking of other institutions, before you joined um, National Portrait Gallery, you co-curated an exhibition of Henry Matisse's cutout um, works yeah. at Tate Modern, and that was obviously hugely successful. Successful, I know it had like over five hundred thousand visitors, and um, it really left a big impression on me. I, I remember the rooms in particular where you see all the the large scale cutouts. Works. Yeah. It was just a mind blowing show. Yeah. Can you talk quickly about Henry and Matisse and that and what it was like being part of that landmark kind of show? Yeah. Um, well, actually, that began very, um, in, yeah, again, like in a very random way, like everything I do. And uh, so I, I, I started work at Tate Modern. I was an assistant curator. I started there in 2007. And one of my first shows was to work with Nick Sorota on the Site Wombly show, which was amazing. And uh, that was in 2008. And the year later... He was still alive then, right? Did you... Cy Twombly, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I I did a couple of shows with him. I did that one. And then I did one um, pairing him with um, Poussin, the 17th century French painter at Dulwich, Pichigari in 2011. Because Poussin was Cy's favourite artist, basically. Oh, wow. Which kind of, I always thought was really weird because they're so opposite. But actually, when you look at it, there's, there's the same deep well of inspiration, which is antiquity landscape you know um ancient history sort of classism all those things anyway so about 2009 i remember um i said to nick sorota like we should do a matisse show like you know at that point like tate modern had never really done a matisse show we'd done like um matisse picasso and we'd done several picasso shows but there was like a dearth of matisse and of course tate has the snail which is we all love is amazing (laughs) and yeah, and I, I, you know, as personally, like as a teenager, early teenager, when I was growing up in Yorkshire, I, I used to, um, do you remember those like Tarshan posters you could buy that were like yeah. six little posters in a pack? 
Yeah. And um, I had jazz and I used to have them on my bedroom wall. And that was my idea of like, this is modern art. And I just think there's something so amazing and, and immediate about those late works by Matisse. They're so moving, but they're so joyful that everyone just kind of gets them. And so, and I said to Nick, we should do the cutouts. And he was like, it's going to be too hard to do. Like, you're not going to get the loans. No. And then a couple of days later, he was like, could you just send in a proposal? And it began like that. And um, so we started in 2009. And then, yeah, it must have been in, was it 2014? So it took about five years. Wow. Um, just to get those loans is really hard. But like, we got almost everything you could possibly want because we, you know, in talking to all these lenders, they realized this was like a once in a lifetime opportunity a bit like i'm going to go see the vermeer show actually with elizabeth payton in a couple of weeks um at the Rijksmuseum in amsterdam and that has something like 80 or 90 percent of all of his extant works in yeah. one place and yeah. you know none of us are ever going to see those works all together again um and it was kind of one of those occasions where i don't think matisse's cutouts will be brought back together at that scale so it was an amazing yeah it was an amazing show to work with but it's it's also kind of how i like to work which is to I, everything I do is really intuitive. Like I don't second guess or focus group or kind of calculate. I just, I really go by my gut instincts and everything. And so it did become this big blockbuster and we kind of knew it would do probably pretty well. Cause like people like the cutouts, but we didn't know it was going to like become the number one show. And I think it still is. Um, but yeah, so like it's I, they're good instincts, Nicholas. They're good instincts. You, you, well, <laughs> I just don't, I think it's really cynical to talk about like blockbusters versus like highbrow, or I just don't think that way. I just think about like things I love to go back to that storytelling discussion. Yeah, yeah, like I think it's really boring and cynical to think like we'll do this show because it'll get bums on seats, and then we'll do this show because we really want to do it, but it won't get as many people. Like just do what you love. Like don't worry about it so much, you know. And I, I think mean, you have it, to give people credit for their intelligence and curiosity and taste as well i'm going to give you some quick fire questions yeah uh favorite portrait when you were working as a student at the mpg oh good question um at the mpg yeah it probably was that self-portrait by george romney because uh when i was working there there was a george romney show (laughs) and i spent a lot of time in that show and i just loved that self-portrait and actually i put it in the unfinished show at the Met that I mentioned before with Elizabeth Payton, because it's, it is unfinished and you'll see it's going on view when we reopen in this amazing gallery. Sorry, this is no longer a quick fire. Anyway. No, no, one. no. It's great. Elaborate, yeah. elaborate. Yeah. Favorite portrait apart from mine by Deron Langberg that's coming in from the new 60 that was going to be revealed. Oh, um, well, obviously like my is quite a special one because that's a really major acquisition. I mean, not just for us, but like for the nation. So that's pretty special. Um, but there's many. I mean, I'm trying, there's so many. Like I'm saying that there's 60-odd. So yeah, the, you can't choose a favorite because that would be, like, really rude. <laughs> well, there's just, you know, there's, there's ones that, like, really do something different for us. And one thing that's coming in that I'm really excited about because I haven't seen it yet, and it's actually coming in as a loan, but then hopefully we'll acquire it, is um, an amazing self-portrait by Khadija Say. Um, oh, yeah, which is really oh, beautiful. Wow. And actually, there's a there's a color template on the wall where it's going to be hung, <gasps> and I just can't wait to see that. That's going to be wonderful. Wow, Can you talk about her legacy because I mean, it's just yeah. So uh, yeah, obviously, she was um, uh, a fantastic artist with with you know, an really tragically um, all too brief a career and smaller body of work, because sadly she died uh, in the Grenfell fire, 
but she left behind these these extraordinary photographs which used kind of 19th century techniques like tintypes and printing techniques um most of which were self-portraits there's very few of them and so for us to have that in the collection will be a really amazing thing and i'm really happy that we got it yeah, amazing for the amazing. reopening as a loan but we'll we'll turn it into an acquisition eventually so now that's we've said thing. it now we've said it it's going to be an yeah acquisition. if you that's build fine. it it will come so Full, I, but I'm, I'm really excited for that one i think it's incredible so the 14 million pound renovation what was the biggest nightmare in the last three <laughs> years oh um uh, uh like of that renovation mm. Um, I mean, it all actually went pretty well. There was no major disasters. I think, I think, I think the probably the hardest thing was like some of the unnecessary friction that was and white noise that was going on, like culture wars, and you know that that was just kind of really boring. I I find it doesn't. I just find it a big distraction. So I mean, hopefully we're kind of getting over that now. But yeah, that's that's been a little bit of a backdrop, which I found not the most fun thing. But apart, like the actual project, like raising, I mean, there was, you know, stress about raising the money or getting planning permission, but that all Yeah, because it's out. a listed building, right? So there's obviously yeah. many restrictions there in place. Yeah, but it all went really well. We were really lucky. Like, I mean, you know, we got planning permission first time around and everyone could see the benefit of doing this project. And, you know, internally, like there was just lots of, we had challenges, but there's, I mean, morale is really good. Like everyone's really excited about this and there's a really good team spirit and we, you know, it hasn't been fractious or stressful. I just keep saying to people like now, like I did an all staff briefing on Monday, I'm like, let's just enjoy it. Like everyone's done an amazing job. Things will go wrong. Something it won't all be perfect, but let's just make it as good as it can be. But let's really enjoy it. That's one of the most important things, I think. Yeah. Um, your fashion sense is something that's discussed a lot online. Uh, I see you as uh, a younger Alan Bennett in style. Would you agree with that? Uh, that is the highest compliment I've ever had. Exactly. Thank you. I will take it. He's from Leeds. Yeah, great. Yeah, love it. Good. Thank you. What was the first museum you went to growing up in Yorkshire? You were born in Connecticut, for everyone that's listening anyway, because you're saying you're born in America in 1977, and then you were raised in Yorkshire. What yeah, was the first sort of art thing you saw? Uh, well... The, my sort of go-to museums were Leeds City Art Gallery and Manchester City Art Gallery because we, we lived equidistant between those two. So I would go to those with my mom. I remember like when I was about nine going to see this amazing uh, Corro exhibition, the 19th century French painter at Manchester City Art Gallery. We would come occasionally to London, but that was like a big treat. Uh, we didn't really have the money to do that very often. So yeah, like those museums made a big impression on me. And what's been the most wonderful, like, um, rise against adversity throughout this whole renovation for you? Uh, for the gallery? Yeah. Um, and personally, I guess. Oh, good question. Well, it's interesting. Recently, there's been a couple of things where we've been showing people around um, the almost finished entire projects. Hard hat. And hard hat. Yes, work. hard hat. Yeah, yeah. You actually don't need a hard hat now. That's a sign of progress. Like, oh, I'd wear one anyway. Back from the, I yeah, love it's a good hat. And the high vis and the boots. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I felt super butch the last few years Oof. wearing putting those on, yeah. Um, Alan Bennett and... in a hard hat. Lovely. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a visual image now. It's great. Uh, so, yeah, what was interesting is just um, after all these years of work and, like, overcoming all of these doubts and obstacles – and people said to me, like, oh, we just never thought it was going to happen or we weren't sure it was going to work. And also a bit like my, like, people said to me, like, 
you know, we just never thought you were going to pull it off. We didn't think we'd raise the money or, and I, I just, I, I get it, but I don't get it. Cause I, I like have an idea and then you just will it into being. And it's just, you make it impossible that it's not going to happen. Like manifest destiny. So, um, yeah, I just thought it was interesting. Like, I've always had a very clear picture. It was going to look like this and this, like exactly how everything was going to look and the wall colors and the labels and the works on the wall. And, um, so it looks exactly like I've always sort of known it would look, if that makes sense. But it's just interesting when you hear like people like, oh, we didn't think it was going to happen. And like, yeah, anyway, so that, it's just that we did it. It's an incredible achievement. I yeah. cannot wait. We cannot wait to get in there. Yeah, I can't wait for it. Um, I, I've actually had so many memorable moments in the National Portrait Gallery since I got into art as well. Like I remember seeing um, David Beckham sleeping and then... Yes. Um, and, not, uh, not in real life. No, no, not in real life. <laughs> yeah, he was um, loving a nap. And even the bloodhead sculpture by Mark, Mark Quinn. Quinn. Yes. They, they were all, you know, years and years and years ago. And then Tracy Emin's, um death mask yes. bronze sculpture, which I just thought was exquisite. Well, And there's so many. It's funny you mentioned both um, Mark Quinn's bloodhead and Tracy Emin's death mask because they're both on display. We've done this really beautiful um, gallery at the end which looks at um, life and death masks from our collection because we have these amazing historical death masks that we don't often show, like of uh, William Blake. And and actually we sell a plaster cast of that in the shop and that's what inspired, Mark Quinn bought one and that's what inspired Bloodhead. Francis oh. Bacon bought one in the 60s and made a whole series of paintings around it. Um, and so it's this fantastic dialogue um, across time and indeed life and death of our historical um, life and death masks and then contemporary responses, which is really nice. So I'm excited about that. Mm. So we ask every guest who comes on the show two questions. The first is, is if you could do an imaginary art heist and take home any work you want from around the world, we can help you with helicopters and vans and trucks. Um, what would you take? But also what would you take from the National Portrait Gallery collection? Oh, that's a good one. Um, you know, Shall I start with not MPG first, mm -hmm. just in general? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh. I mean, there's one I really love, which is the Felix Gonzalez Torres, um, the two clocks. Yeah, perfect lovers. We love. Oh, that. that's such an amazing piece of art. I it just is. love it. It's so moving. It's so simple, but it's super moving. So that would be a really nice thing to have. And from the MPG, I was. I, mm, there's the Gwen John self-portrait, which is pretty amazing. Like mm. it might have to be that one, but there's, there's a few. Yeah. I love that one. Yeah. I that's amazing. That yeah. Oof. What would you actually, what would you steal to put into the National Portrait Gallery? Oh, that's a like even from somewhere else. better question. <laughs> oh, I was casing Tate Britain today to figure out what I'm going to steal. And then, <laughs> um, I get, yeah. Like what, what do I wish we had, but we don't. Um, oh, okay. That's a pretty good one. So there's a few that did get away. And, and one that got away that's pretty amazing is the Holbein of Henry VIII that is now in the Thyssen collection in Madrid. Um, mm. And of course we have the amazing Holbein uh, drawing cartoon of Henry VII and Henry VIII, which is the only surviving uh, image of the now lost Whitehall painting that was destroyed in the fire of whitehall and they're the preparatory uh, sketches is that why they're called the cartoons yeah. exactly yeah yeah uh, not because it's a tom and jerry thing <laughs> um and that's an amazing thing to have but yeah we like we don't have a great holbein painting so i'd probably like to kind of rectify that 
And you yeah, the ambassadors. Is that not part of the collection? National Gallery. Oh, you know what I should do? I should just break through the wall. Yes, and I just can pull it just around the corner. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, is yeah. it the National Gallery, the ambassadors? <laughs> yep. Right, right, right. Yeah. yeah. Okay, we'll get okay. you that. Gonna, I think an art high's tunnel th- situation is coming up. Yeah. We will get you. Yeah, that. you need the mole man. <laughs> you can come yes. Yeah. Um, favorite color, Nicholas. Fabric color. Favorite. Oh, and oh. you can be favorite fabric color as well. Oh, yeah. That's a Freudian slip. It's funny because um, you, you the the second floor of the gallery are all um, there's not a painted wall. They're all fabrics, mm. and they're also quite colorful. You'll see. So they're all these wool oh. fabrics, and they're quite rich colors. So. There's an orange that I'm pretty obsessed with right now, and you'll see what I mean when we reopen. Is it is it a certain type of orange, or we just got to wait and see? Bright orange, lovely. Yes, that's my favorite. Rob color. loves that orange. I'm going to love the new MPT. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What is the um, best advice that you've ever received when it comes to your work? Uh, it was. It's not relevant to me, but it's something that Sai Twombly said, and I think about it a lot, and I also say it to artist friends um if they're having a bit of a hard time in general i remember Sai said to me he looked i mean obviously at this point he was in his early 80s with this incredible career and incredibly successful and incredibly lauded but he said the best thing that ever happened to me was when i got kind of forgotten about in the early 60s especially in america so you know his career really hit the skids in america from the early 60s until the 90s when he had his uh, retrospective at MoMA because he did a show at Leo Castelli Gallery and um, it was panned and especially panned by critics like Donald Judd, the artist. And he said the best thing that can ever happen to an artist is they they get forgotten about for a bit because you get left alone to make the work that you really want to make. Mm. And I think about that a lot and I because I think, I think it's so hard for young artists now. They're kind of put on this treadmill of expectation exploitation potentially you know it it can be a very mixed blessing to even have success i think right now because it can also do all kinds of weird things and potentially people try and exploit it and it's just so that's something i kind of share with especially the artist friends that you know it's no bad thing to get forgotten about it's also it's applicable to all of us like it's been quite nice to be a bit off the radar the last three years you know and just to yeah it's, it's felt like doing a bit of a phd again or something you know like not to not be kind of not be worried about like what reviews are going to say or you know just to be able to kind of get on and do what you want to do you're um, going to have a lot of media and a lot of interviews and a lot of attention aren't you in the, in the coming weeks <laughs> yeah i suppose so yeah let's see yeah no he's turning all interviews down he's only doing talk up <laughs> you've got the exclusive <laughs> i watched um, <laughs> I, just, I just want to say that you, only you, to you. you taking that advice from Sai, but also i watched um a portion of a, a Vimeo where you were talking to students and giving them advice and inspiration. And you said that one of the most important things is be kind, uh, polite and courteous and how you treat others around you and make sure that other people are enjoying the ride as much yeah. as you are. And that feels like something like a manifesto for you, which I assume is what has been galvanizing for all the staff at the MPG and everybody that's really been involved in it. Yeah. I just think like, Oh my God, let's enjoy it. Like, you know, we all love this, but it's not, it's not brain surgery. It's really important. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not un- underestimating it. But you know, like no one's going to die. Hopefully, like we all want to do the best job. But even if like someone says something negative, like everyone's still going to be alive, so everything's fine. So I just think it's really important to, and I think also especially like uh, the the more senior you are, 
the more important it is to really set um well to kind of set standards and to and to and to i mean in terms of like behavior and kindness and and courtesy it makes a massive difference like if you i know that if i walk around the museum and i wouldn't say hello to people or i was scowling it's gonna have a little ripple effect and if i walk around and make sure that i you know you don't have to stop and have a long conversation but if you just make eye contact smile say hi to everyone ask them how they're doing just like radiate you know being a human it makes a massive difference that's a brilliant that's a brilliant way to finish yeah yeah Yeah, just putting people at ease you know it's like really it's a really simple thing to do it doesn't cost anything it also makes life much more enjoyable for you and yeah i just think we should enjoy it you know we should just enjoy life and we should enjoy what we're doing it's like we we get to do something kind of amazing and not everyone gets to do that so let's enjoy it you know well we have enjoyed this last hour and a bit with you nicholas thank you so so much for coming on talk art we are all so excited what is the actual opening date june the 22nd. 22nd june the 22nd less than a month and then it's open 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 it's not shutting down again. yeah but also there, there's so many cool shows coming up so there's an amazing kind of first look festival for a week or so but then you have paul mccartney's photographs from 1963 Ooh. to 1964 which is a really fascinating year for him i have to say we're installing that show now and it is really blowing my mind and it's incredibly moving because mm. there's hundreds of photographs that have never been seen by the world and they're so intimate and they're so kind of tender and poignant. There's, I just saw yesterday, I don't think I'm giving anything away, but I just saw these two photographs that he took in that year of John Lennon wearing glasses, like really thick glasses. And mm. I don't think the world kind of knew that at that point, like John Lennon probably needed to wear glasses all the time. And I just <laughs> found it really moving. So yeah, I'm kind of excited about that show. That's your, that's your I, spec I just, savers um, history. Yes, exactly, yeah. <laughs> I just saw Mary's um, Mary McCartney show and and the portraits of her mum's bed. Yeah, I love that portrait. Yeah. That, that that picture. It's such a beautiful, beautiful photo. Yeah, and you also have um, Yv- how do you say Evans? Yeah, the artist Yvonne. formerly known as Madame Evans. Um, yeah, who, Madame Evans. She was this amazing British photographer, pioneer of color photography, uh, active from the nineteen twenties until like the seventies. And we had a great collection of her work. And then two or three years ago, we acquired her entire um, oh, archive of wow. photographic Whoa. negatives. And actually, the, the Chanel project, they, they sort of funded us being able to do all this research and to, to print these images, which had never really been properly printed before. And it, it's a revelation. She's such an amazing photographer. She looks so contemporary in her sitters, her subjects, her colors, the setup. Yeah, that's a great show, too. Yeah, the use of colour is incredible. Yep. And also, I'm really excited for the Taylor Wessing Photo um, Portrait Prize, which is at the end of the year, because that's obviously like new portraits, new life, yeah. um, and super, super exciting new talent. So oh, I can't wait for that. Yeah, like Echo Show that he's doing early next year, which is called The Time Is Always Now. Echo Ishan. I love him. The final show that we've, because we announced the first year of programme, uh, the final show is going to be really amazing which is Julia Margaret Cameron with Francesca Woodman, that pairing, which looks incredible, yeah. And then more to come, but I can't say. Well, thank you so much. It's been such a privilege and 
honour to uh, spend this hour with you. And for everyone listening, the podcast I mentioned earlier about the poet who was talking about paying attention, um, is, is, he's a poet called David White, and it was with Krista Tippett, and it's on being. I really recommend that episode. It is extraordinary, from May 2022. And then um, head over to the National Portrait Gallery. It opens from the 22nd of June, 2023. Um, so much of the National Portrait Gallery is free to access. The new entrance, the new install, the new hang is remarkable, and I think it's going to really bring something wonderful to this country, including the portrait of Russell Tony by the one and only Deron Langberg. And you can also hear our episode with Deron Langberg on the archives of Talk Art. So dig in and you can learn more about his world as well. Well, thank you so much for listening. Thank you, Nicholas. We'll thank you, everyone. Very soon. Thank you both for having me. It's been great. Thank you, Nicholas. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to Talk Art with Robert Diamond and Russell Toby. Follow us on Instagram at Talk Art, where you can view images of all artworks discussed in today's episode, with music by Jack Northover. Subscribe to Talk Art at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. Give us a rating and write us a comment. Thanks for listening. Listening.